welcome back to Monsters and Mixers podcast. We are your hosts. I am Emma. And I am Amy. And today we are bringing you part two of the JonBenet Ramsey series that we're doing here. This one's going to be a little bit longer, probably actually a lot of bit longer than the first one, but it's juicy. Yeah. It's a lot to talk about. And if it's too long, we are just talking, we might break it up into two parts, but we'll see. Yeah, I would prefer to not because I'm not <laughs> sure exactly how I would do that here, but... Yeah, is there anything you want to discuss before? I don't think so. It's been pretty chill. Um, just kind of summer is over officially, so we have a nice, beautiful fall day here today. It's making me a it little... It does feel very nice. Last week was absolutely awful. It's making me excited for spooky time coming up soon. Yeah, is... I told them when we get back from dropping my sister off at school, I'm fallifying our home. I want fall scented candles and I want my Halloween blankets out. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Yeah. That might be kind of hard, though, since we're going to be putting the house up for sale soon. Gonna no, keep I'll it, make it work. Keep it to specs. Candles we'll will be okay. Yeah, candles are fine. All right. Well, we are going to go ahead. Like we said, it's going to be a long one. We're going to dive right in. Emma's going to dive right in. I'm going to listen and <laughs> add whenever I feel appalled, probably. Yep. All right. So, like I said, today we are diving into part two of the John Bonet Ramsey case, and we are picking up right where we left off. Um, I want to say right now, if you didn't get the chance to listen to part one, I highly suggest that you do that before listening. Um, so you're up to speed with us, unless you're a John Bonet Ramsey expert, then you probably don't need to because you already know the facts. But you're going to be a little confused if you don't hear what we had to say in the first one and then you just listen to this one. Um, the second part is going to focus on the events that transpired when the Ramsey family returned to Boulder after John Bonet's funeral and everything that has happened with them since. And I'm going to go more in depth on the um, first 10-day investigation that the police did and what they found from that investigation. I wanted to start off by um, reading you all the ransom note in full, uh, just in case you've never had the chance to do so yourself. I, and we're going to kind of pick that apart a little bit here. I have never, so I don't want to say I'm excited, but I am <laughs> intrigued. All right, so it starts out, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business. Business is spelled wrong, by the way. Two S's where they're not supposed to be. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed. And if you want to see 19, if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. What the frick? If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence a earlier and delivery is crossed out and it is replaced with pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. 
You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around. So don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you not now, John. Victory, SBTC. That is insanely worded. Incredibly long. Yeah. Um, and the statement analysis that I pulled this from the website that they have gone into full in depth about this ransom note, that is the first thing that they point out, is that it is very long for a ransom note. Um, most ransom notes are very short and to the point. They threaten you, they say who they have in your possession, and they demand what they want. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much it. They will, they'll say, don't call the police, we will be in contact with you. And that is it. This ransom note was written on three pieces of paper. And that was the first clue to the police that they were like, this is weird. Something different. Like, we have never seen this before. Um, not to mention, they say we are a group of individuals in the second line. Um, what does that even mean? They never once, like, specify what group they are. Or what um, their cause is for. Or what they're, they imply that it's for political reasons right. that they are upset they like with the country. state of America. Um, but it, you would think that they would be more specific in like why, especially if they're going to take the time to write out three pages, right? They would probably want to be more descriptive in who they are and why they're doing things. It just kind of, it, when you read it like that, it's almost like a last minute. Oh, well, what is a likely group of people that would probably want to do this to us. Right. And what exactly was his business again? Was it um, He worked for Access Graphics, so no. I mean, later, I'm sure there, it got bought out by Lockheed Martin, I think, which I'm sure there could be um, people who were pissed off about that later. But at this time, he was literally just doing, like, he was a very rich and wealthy, like, computer businessman. Hmm. So it's not like he was a politician or in local politics. It really didn't make much sense. Did they find out what the hell SP, SBTC was? So, at the end of this here, they talk about the SBTC. Um, let me see. So, the note is signed. It says, the note is signed SBTC, and it appears that there is no period after the letter C. Um, when writing, we end a thought by a period. Not using a period tells us the writer intentionally stopped writing, whatever. But they think they have implied, there's a lot of speculation that SBTC means saved by the cross. Religious um, fundamentalists, and they think that uh, the Ramses they have they were very uh, faithful, God fearing family. Mm -hmm. They were very open about their faith, and they use the word victory before the SBTC. Um, and this says here it is through Christ's sacrifice on the cross that we have victory over death. But that's just kind of a an assumption. It's never been determined what SBTC means. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess that... I don't know what else it would mean. It didn't mean stand for any sort of group that any of them knew. Um, stand by the cross, I guess, mean, makes sense. Save by, by the cross. I, I'm really not sure. Well, and the whole, like, implying that they're going to be head heard and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's like they almost were watching way too many um, ISIS videos and or, things like, like that. Or, like, crime movies. Yeah. Like, something that I'm going to mention later is that this... 
very much seems like it was written by someone who has dedicated a lot of time to watching a lot of crime movies. And this is kind of just their gist of what a very dramatic ransom note should be. Yeah. And not a legitimate ransom note. Because like we said, it's going to be like three lines. Here's our demands. Here's who we have. Here's when we want to buy. Don't call the cops. That's it. No one's going to walk into this house wanting to kidnap a girl and then take the time to sit down and not only correct their spelling mistakes and like right, right, cross out. stuff out, but it's just... Did the handwriting analysis show if it was hastily written or was it written like um, very legibly and neatly? It was not neatly. It was very hastily written. You can even see, let me see if I can pull up a picture of like the actual handwritten note. I'll post this all for you guys to see too. Um, it wasn't written very neatly. And it was written with one of those like felt tip Sharpie pens. That smears a little that bit. That smear, I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm left-handed, but they've always smeared for me. I can't, I can't use them. But if, here, I'll show you here. It doesn't look, I mean. It's not as messy as I would have expected. It's very neat handwriting, but it also looks like intentionally blocky handwriting. Yeah. Where. Is that a combination of cursive and print or just, no, it's just, I can't It's just tell. print. Yeah. Which would take a long time to write. Also. Yes, a very long time. Sorry for those of you who don't have good cursive, but mine's the mine's fastest, mine's <laughs> fastest way for me mine's to write. Bad. It's not fast for me, but mine, once again, left-handed. Like, it's a struggle for me to print, like, print block letter yeah. something. It takes a long time for me. Right. So I'm assuming since she, they, all the people that could have possibly written the letter are older, mm -hmm. the people that lived in the Ramsey home, that they would have had pretty good cursive handwriting yeah especially back in 1996 where almost everything you're doing at that point is handwritten like yeah. when you're writing like grocery lists or you're doing like letters sent to people like it's very rare back then that you were going to like type out something I mean you're still writing papers for school back in that time so which also indicates that the person was intentionally trying to write it different than the way that they normally would write yes okay Just so we're going to move on from my that detective for now. skills <laughs> but yes so as I stated in the first episode, and I'm sure many of you already know, the murder of John Benet Ramsey remains unsolved to this day. One of the key reasons for that being true can be attributed to the overall lack of control that the Boulder County Police Department had over the crime scene inside the Ramsey home from the very beginning of their response and their investigation. Throughout the hours of December 26th, many grave mistakes were made in regards to following established procedures and protocols by the police officers who responded that day. And had those procedures been followed the way they were supposed to be, we may have the answers we so desperately want today. So I'm going to, this may seem like I'm being uh, highly critical here, and it is because I am. I'm going to go in and essentially lay out every single thing that they did wrong and how they did it wrong and how it was so royally fucked up. So the 911 call about the alleged kidnapping and the discovery of a ransom note came into the department just as a shift change of officers was about to occur. With the case happening right at Christmas time, and with the holiday season considered to be one of the weakest staffing periods of the entire year for the police departments, the Boulder police were left with only a minimal amount of officer, officers on duty, and it was said that many of those officers were inexperienced, especially in regards to responding to a potential kidnapping. The first officer on scene, Officer Rick French of Patrol Unit 273, pulled up to the home in the well-known black and white police cruiser. This has been criticized by multiple people, with the reason being that in the event that you're responding to a potential kidnapping, and you know that there is a ransom note involved because told Patsy you not says to call the so cops. On the, on the 911 call, it's probably best that you arrive in an unmarked car. 
If the potential kidnappers were watching the house to keep an eye on the scene at the time, they would have immediately known from the car alone that the authorities had been called. And as we know, in the ransom note, it distinctly says, do not contact the police, do not contact the FBI, we are watching your every move. And this could have absolutely dire results for the abducted child, especially depending, like I said, on what was written in the ransom note. And we know that it was explicitly mentioned in the ransom note not to contact authorities. After the initial officer arrived at the scene, the first and foremost priority should have been to immediately secure the crime scene and prevent anyone from leaving or entering the area. This is absolutely essential in preserving the scene and making sure very minimal contamination happens and that no valuable evidence within the scene is destroyed before it can be collected and recorded. The integrity of the crime scene and the evidence within it should be absolute priority. But as we all know from part one, that just simply wasn't the truth this day. Okay, I'm sorry, I have to ask this question before I forget. Did anyone ever question the Ramseys why they contacted the police knowing that could have put their daughter in danger? Mm -hmm. No, but it was questioned and noted as odd. And I'm going to mention, talk about that later on, um, that they knew that they were on a tight time frame, like 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. They Mm -hmm. told you that is it and never once like brought that up or were worried like, hey, we have to get this done or wire it by now or whatever. Like they didn't talk about it. Yeah, because, I mean, if I got a ransom note for someone that I loved mm-hmm. and it said not to contact somebody they were being watched and I knew I had the money to pay to get that person back, I would just pay to get them back. Right. I'm just getting the money. And then I can file the police reports and hopefully try to find the person afterwards. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not going to do the exact thing they told me not to do. Right. Not only that, but I'm not going to also call, like, four of my closest friends and have them come to my house. Yeah. Because in the event that someone is watching my home... What, I'm going to have, like, the entire town's police squad and friends yeah. and family at my house creating the hustle and bustle, not even knowing where my daughter is or if they have her, and they just threatened to behead her. Yeah, this whole thing stinks. Yeah. So, not only was the house itself not treated the way it was supposed to be given the circumstances, the police had absolutely no control over the Ramsey family as well. Their movement and their activity should have immediately been rest- restricted to prevent the alteration or destroying of evidence, but it wasn't. Despite the warnings in the ransom note of basically certain death for John Bonet, if anyone was con- contacted, Patsy Ramsey called four close family friends immediately after calling the police. Fleet and Priscilla White, who we mentioned in our first episode from their Christmas party, and John and Barbara Fernie, and they were asked to hurry over to the home, which they did. And the police let these people enter the house. What was their purpose for being there? I have no idea. Were they supposed to help search? Emotional support, I guess. I have no idea. The, and... I know I'm going to have 8 million questions, but also why bring people over to search the house when you're acting under the presumption she's been removed? Right. It just Mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense at all. Right. So further proving the risk that these four posed to the crime scene, upon his arrival, Fleet White took it upon himself to take a walk within the house to look for John Bonet. Um, he believed he she was just potentially just hiding somewhere, um, which would mean that he would she, also have to believe that six-year-old John Bonet wrote a ransom note, a three-page <laughs> like, ransom note. But okay, with specific words like <laughs> right. beheading and. We have absolutely no idea what he could have touched, what he could have moved, what he could have tampered with. Nothing, because the police just let him go off on his own with absolutely no one watching him or supervising him. Adding to the things he tainted by just simply being there in the first place, he discovered the piece of broken glass under the broken basement window, placed it on the window ledge, and got down on his hands and knees to search for more fragments. 
Since he was not restricted by any means whatsoever, he tainted a very, very valuable and crucial piece of evidence of the crime scene by physically moving the suitcase that was placed under the window. Which we still don't know why the hell that was there. Right. Um, and this next information made me, like shaking with rage as I was reading it because it just seemed so absurd. But two victim advocates showed up to the Ramsey house as well and just added to, not only added to the unnecessary population of non-essential personnel within the house, but after a crime scene technician went around and dusted for fingerprints, one of the advocates followed behind with spray cleaner and a rag to quote, tidy up the mess. What the fuck? So, possible trace evidence was completely erased in the name of cleanliness. Where did these victim advocates come from and who called them? Right, and why are they here? And why are they just allowed to come in? It's just... <laughs> it's absurd. So, this alone, right here, could theoretically have cost the police the entire investigation yeah. by wiping away just the mere possibility of any more potential evidence. You shouldn't be cleaning up anything. No. Nothing should be touched. They shouldn't have been allowed inside the house. If you want to call victim advocates, which I don't think you should do until after victim, you have gotten Victim John advocates Binet. of what crime? What That's what they, I'm saying. Yeah, what are it's they? like, what are they, like, counselors that are showing up? I've never once read how specified, like, <clears throat> it specified anywhere, like, what they were, or who they were hired right. by, or who... What did they think she had been a victim of? Kidnapping? And, Is right. it kidnapping yes, victims? Kidnapping. Okay. And so I... I could see where, like, a victim's advocate would want to, like, make the space cleaner for people in the event that they're responding to, like, a traumatic situation. Mm -hmm. Because it just makes it everyone feel better. But in the event that you're responding to a potential kidnapping where we don't even know, at this point we think is a breaking and entering and a stealing, we have no idea who entered the home and who left it. You shouldn't be touching anything. No. And you definitely shouldn't be following a uh, freaking... Forensic. Forensic tree. analysis. Yeah. Analysis. Oh my gosh, what is it? Forensic analyst? Analysts. Yeah. <laughs> a forensic analyst and just wiping up everything that they're... Oh, you got that fingerprint? Okay. Why don't you tidy up? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a bunch of busybodies. Not only busybodies, but it's... Oh my gosh. Dumb. Busybodies, but a lot of people who just simply weren't thinking. No. Like, you were not thinking at all. And in a situation like this, you have to be at your peak game here. Because as far as they know at this point... The police, John Bonet is gone. It's like she's out of the house. Yeah. Weird. Weird, weird. Right. So, um, as we all know, when a crime occurs, an important thing for responding officers to do is collect, collect statements and comments from any and all of the witnesses who may have seen or heard anything at all. In this particular case, the main witnesses in the Ramsey home were Patsy and John and their son, Burke. When the initial kidnapping was reported, the police should have immediately woken Burke up and asked him if he had personally seen or heard anything during the night. Neither the police nor his parents thought that this was necessary. When John finally woke Burke up, he quickly got him dressed and sent him to be taken out of the house or taken to the house of a family friend. Given the fact that he was a key witness in the investigation, no matter how much John insisted that he go elsewhere, the police should have never allowed him to be taken from the house. John was insisting that Burke was sleeping and therefore did not know anything about what just happened throughout the night, and the cops just ran with that information. The police did find it very odd that Patsy and John would want Burke to be out of their sight, let alone in an unprotected location away from them and the police, given the fact that their daughter had just potentially been kidnapped by a supposed terrorist organization, as depicted in the ransom note, 
but unfortunately any knowledge that Burke may have had about that night walked right out the door with him when he was allowed to leave. Yeah, this is the worst case scenario for anything. I don't understand how anyone kept their jobs after. That's a great question. The official scene walkthrough of the house didn't happen until hours after the investigation had began. Like I said in the first episode, when they showed up, they did kind of a cursory um, of the outside, whatever. The actual walkthrough of the house, the inside of the house, was not done until hours after police were inside of the home. Given the time it took them to conduct the walkthrough as opposed to doing it immediately as they are supposed to, once again, when I say supposed to, I mean... That's protocol. By protocol. Yeah. Like, by the job that they are sworn to do. They are legally supposed to do this. There were an overwhelming amount of chances for anyone involved to contaminate evidence. As we know from the first episode, the unofficial walkthrough team consisted solely of John Ramsey and Fleet White. Both civilians. Detective Linda Arndt suggested that the two conduct their own search of the house to see if they would be able to locate anything belonging to John Bonet. Um... Why the hell would a detective find it appropriate to allow these two untrained individuals to waltz through an active crime scene, knowing that they would not understand how evidence should be collected and preserved? So in the event that they do find something belonging to John Benet, where it's not supposed to touch it, or they're just going to pick it up and be like, hey, I found it. Like they did earlier with the suitcase and the glass. And did they bring the lady with her feather duster so she could clean up (laughs) after? Like what? Yeah, what a mess. It's an absolute disaster. Allegedly, no officer was available at the time to escort them. Um, I mean, Linda, you seemed pretty available. You told them to do it. You couldn't have gone on a three-minute walk through the house. But okay. Um, To escort them. So they were literally just wandering around completely unsupervised. And and honestly, if anyone in the house had done that and they were looking for someone to be like a co-conspirator or an accomplice or an alibi or anything... You're letting people wander off in pairs where they can do anything. They can come up with a story. Talk about whatever they, can they do, want. Yeah, do whatever they want. You Have should keep them in a room. that they want. Yeah, because we don't know if this fleet guy had anything to do with it. We don't. They have no idea who did right. anything. So, and if anything, I think it should have probably Sorry. raised some suspicions that Fleet was the first person called over to the house. Yeah, like what the hell? Like why are why one? Why do you want anyone else but the police in your home? So it probably should have raised some eyebrows that they invited the Whites over to their house. I mean, but is he an didn't... ex-detective right. or does he work? No, with he him? No. was like an ex. I don't even remember what it was, but like some ex-oil mechanic or something. He worked at, like, an oil refinery. Yeah. So. It just gets worse and worse. Yeah. So, originally, Detective Arndt had suggested that the two search the house from, quote, top to bottom. But John immediately headed towards the basement instead of following said suggestion. He was later described as making a beeline for a tiny dark wine cellar with a white door at the far end of the basement. As we all know now, John would make the absolutely horrific discovery of his daughter's brutally murdered body when he opened that door. John is later quoted saying in an interview, As I was walking through the basement, I opened the door to a room and knew immediately that I'd found her. Her eyes were closed. I feared the worst, but yet I'd found her. John not only ripped the tape off that was covering her mouth, but he attempted to loosen the ligatures on her wrists and then scooped her up and carried her upstairs. The moving of her body alone was a severe procedural mistake and disturbed the direct evidence on and around the body, which greatly reduced the accuracy of the investigation. 
And we said in the first episode that we didn't really blame him as much for picking her up and taking her upstairs. And I honestly don't know if I still blame him as much for doing that because he never once should have ever been put in that situation no. to have to do that on his own without a cop there who could have opened the door first and been like, hey guys, you don't want to come in you here. You don't want to come in here. Call other people. We need people down here. But instead, he was just led to... Yeah, but him making the beeline I also find that very also strange. very suspicious. Very strange. Because most of the... I mean, if she was taken from her bed... That's the the line that's mm-hmm. been thrown out right now. You would think that any evidence would, would be, be collected in her room, in her room or yep. around that or area. Or the kitchen or like by the front door or, or whatever. around the note. Yeah. All those things. On the stairs. Not in the basement. Never once was there any indication for and any also, of them to yeah, have to think that they should have gone to the basement. find it very odd that Fleet did his own little search before where he found like the broken window and was in the basement and didn't think to like look in that one room. Right. That was just off on its own fucking liars (laughs) so these errors that were made in the initial investigation completely complicated the resolution and destroyed any chance at solving the case at that time loss and contamination of evidence lack of experienced and technical staff evidence shared with the ramses and delayed informal interviews with the parents were all contributing factors and not to mention that there was no interview done with the brother right Boulder police initially focused almost exclusively on John and Patsy, but by October 1997, which is almost a year later, they had over 1,600 people in their index of persons of interest for the case. So they they initially thought John and Patsy were the only two that could have committed the crime, Mm -hmm. which doesn't make any sense the way that they were treated at the place. You would think that they had no suspicions whatsoever. Right, exactly. On January 5th, so we're going now just not even a month, a week or so after JonBenet's body was discovered, 1997, the police submitted a list of written questions to John and Patsy and began to search their vacation home in Michigan for any evidence. The next day, on January 6th, the Colorado Daily reports that the police had searched the windowless room earlier than John and Fleet and that the body was not there at that time. Boulder District Judge Diane McDonald sealed all of the documents, including the search warrant, relating to the case for 30 days and a Michigan judge sealed the search warrant for the vacation home as the media attempted to use legal means to obtain information about the evidence removed from the house. It's reported that investigators had found a small portion of a quote practice ransom note in the house, which was produced using the same pen and pad of paper. Okay. So hold on, let me go back. So the police said that someone had searched that room and she wasn't there prior. It was reported that the police said that. Okay. And that is when the judge sealed everything, but it is then, I'm going to mention later, it is later reported that the police never said that. Okay. Because you're going to say then they could have taken her body from somewhere else and moved Mm -hmm. it there when they were on their scavenger hunt. Right. Or whatever you want to call it, since nobody found crap. Yeah. Um, So, first time. Yeah, at this point, I mean, once we've seen it before, when the media gets involved and they're getting their hands on information that has not been formally relayed to the public it gets messy very fast Mm -hmm. and things are misconstrued things are lied about things are just like completely false things are said that honestly taint the case even farther because when you have so much misinformation out there how do you even know what's true it's a lot of people trying to be first and not fact checking properly yep quick news always gotta be the first one to break the Mm -hmm. story on January 9th, it's reported that the cord tied around JonBenet's right wrist matched the cord around her neck. Police Chief Tom Kobe announced at a press conference on the same day that the investigation has narrowed, but he neglected to name any suspects. 
This day as well, the Rocky Mountain News reports that police di actually didn't search the room where her body was found on the morning of the 26th. At this time, the Ramseys have hired their own handwriting analysts to evaluate the ransom note, along with former FBI agent John Douglas. On January 21st, it's reported that investigators have provided a copy of the ransom note to the Ramseys, and police state at this time that the $118,000 demanded is the exact amount of money received recently as a Christmas bonus by John. It's worth mentioning that the Ramsey family was asked multiple times to take polygraphs, and every single time they refused. Um, that doesn't always mean an admission of guilt to me. I mean, you don't have to take a polygraph test. Most of the time, actually, your lawyer's going to tell you not to. Yeah, but if you're innocent and you're wanting to find out who killed your child, submitting to that polygraph test will mean that they're no longer focusing on right. you and they can put their efforts into actually finding the person that yeah, killed her. I agree. I personally, if I knew that I had nothing to do with it, I'm not... I want to say that I would take the polygraph test, but also, I mean, you know it how... It is kind of iffy. It's I iffy. Mean, I mean, you know people can, like, lie about a lot of shit that happens. And for some reason, there's, like, this weird phenomena where people automatically assume that if you fail a polygraph test, you're immediately guilty, which is not true. No, it could just be nerves. Right. Or there are many, many reasons both why you can falsely pass a polygraph test and why you can fail falsely a polygraph test. And they're inadmissible in court because they're so... At this time, I'm sure they were considered far say, more mm -hmm. um, foolproof than they actually were. Back in the day, they were used in right. court cases a lot to convict yeah, people. Yeah, but as we know now, they're not as... They're way more faulty than what we actually thought they were to be at the time. All right, I'm getting signaled. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to take a break here, and then we'll be right back. So the investigation as a whole is chaotic, messy, and confusing, so to avoid any sort of mix-ups or miscommunications on my end, I'm going to read this next timeline of events directly from a source of mine as so as to not get it confused. So, Lou Smith was a detective who came out of retirement in early 1997 to assist the Boulder County District Attorney's Office with the case. In May 1998, he presented his findings to the Boulder Police with other staff members of the DA's office concluding that the evidence pointed away from the Ramseys. They were unable to successfully challenge the police department's belief that the Ramseys were guilty. The DA's office sought to take control of the investigation, but due to the animosity between the police and the DA's office and the pressure to obtain a conviction, Colorado Governor Roy Romer interceded and named Michael Kane as special prosecutor to initiate a grand jury. Two of the lead investigators in the case had opposing views. Both Lou Smith and T Steve Thomas ultimately resigned, Smith because he believed that the investigation had incompetently overlooked the intruder hypothesis, and Thomas because the DA's office had interfered with and failed to support the police investigation of the case. A grand jury was convened beginning September 15, 1998, to consider indicting the Ramseys for charges relating to the case. In 1999, the grand jury returned a true bill to charge the Ramseys with placing the child at risk in a way that led to her death and with obstructing an investigation of murder, based on the probable cause standard applied in such grand jury proceedings. 
but Boulder County District Attorney Alex, Alex Hunter did not prosecute them because he did not believe that he could meet the higher standard of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt that is required for a criminal conviction. Mary Lacey, the next Boulder County District Attorney, took over the investigation from the police on December 26, 2002. In April 2003, she agreed with a federal judge who sat on a 2002 libel case that evidence in the suit is, quote, more consistent with a theory that an intruder murdered John Bonet than it was with a theory that Mrs. Ramsey did. So at this point, they have almost completely gone away from thinking it was John and Patsy to just it being Patsy. On July 9th, 2008, the Boulder County District Attorney's Office announced that as a result of newly developed DNA sampling and testing techniques, um, such as touch DNA analysis, which are fingerprints, the Ramsey family members were excluded as suspects in the case, and Lacey publicly exonerated the Ramseys. On February 2nd, 2009, Boulder Police Chief Mark Beckner announced that Stan Garnett, the new Boulder County District Attorney, was turning the case over to his agency and that his team would resume investigating it. Garnett found that the statute of limitations for the crimes identified in the 1999 grand jury bill, True Bill, had expired and did not pursue review of the case against the Ramseys. In October 2010, the Boulder Police reopened the cold case, and new interviews were conducted following a fresh inquiry by a committee that included state and federal investigators. Police were expected to use the latest DNA technology in their investigation. There was no new information gleamed from those interviews, and it was reported in September 2016 that the investigation into John Bonet's death continues to be an active homicide case, per Boulder Police Chief Greg Testa. In 2015, Beckner disagreed with exonerating the Ramseys, stating, Exonerating anyone based on a small piece of evidence that has not yet been proved to even be connected to the crime is absurd. He also stated that the unknown DNA from John Bonet's clothing, um, which I believe at this point they're talking about there was blood found mm -hmm. on her um, long johns that did not belong to her. So I think that's the one piece of DNA that they're going off of. Um, he also stated that the unknown DNA from JonBenet's clothing, quote, has got to be the focus of the investigation at this point in time, and that until one can prove otherwise, the suspect is the donator of that unknown DNA. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. In 2016, Gordon Coombs, a former investigator, which, by the way, what a weird last name, mm -hmm. C-O-O-M-B-E-S, I have never seen that in my life. I have not either. A former investigator for the Boulder County District Attorney's Office also questioned total absolution of the Ramseys, stating, we all shed DNA all the time within our skin cells. It can be deposited anywhere at any time for various reasons, reasons that are benign. To clear somebody just on the premise of touch DNA, especially when you have a situation where the crime scene wasn't secure at the beginning, really is a stretch. Agreed. Stephen E. Pitt, a forensic psychiatrist hired by Boulder Authority, said, Lacey's public exoneration of the Ramseys was a big slap in the face to Chief Beckner and the core group of detectives who had been working on the case for years. Which I agree. I also very much agree. Mm -hmm. So now we are going to kind of go away from the investigation and dive into the theories surrounding this case, as there are quite a few, and buckle in because they're insane. I mean, I have my own theories right now. <laughs> they're probably as crazy as some of the things you're going to say. Um, it being unsolved for so many years has left it wide open for internet sleuths, the media, and the general public to investigate and critique on their own. While many people believe that JonBenet was accidentally murdered by a member of her own family who then staged her death to look like a kidnapping, others are convinced that an intruder broke into the Ramsey home and killed her themselves. 
As quoted in a Rolling Stone article, over the years of relentless and sensationalized coverage that immortalized John Bonet in pageant photos, the search to find her killer has turned into a massive game of media clue. Was it her mother in the basement with a paintbrush for a Garrett that emotionally disturbed... We, it was Garrett, right? We yeah. looked that up. Okay, because yeah. I was like, I have never seen this word before. The emotionally disturbed older brother with a flashlight to the face. The family friend dressed as Santa who seemed a little too eager to visit his special friend on Christmas. Okay, so... I find it hard to believe that the mom killed her. I think the mom might have covered it up. But did anybody ever say, and I'm sure it'll be in here, what her motivation would have been for that? Yeah, yes. Things? Okay. I mean, the fact that her handwriting was, I mean, we've talked about this, I think, or at least I know we will, is, I mean, it was ruled that that was not John's handwriting. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't conclusively rule out that it was Patsy's. Right? That's her name. Yeah. I mean, would at least indicate she was involved in the cover-up, if mm-hmm. not... The fact that he, and that would explain why he knew where the body was, because she told him, those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Why in the hell did they not put more focus into the suitcase and finding out who the suitcase belonged to and doing like some deep dive, like the one story that we talked about where they only found out who the killer was because, or who the missing person was because of the shoes she was wearing, and there was a guy that went in to see the autopsy, remember that um, case where he saw... The shoes and realize that he could track the number. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of ways to find out who the hell that briefcase belonged to. Well, they actually did find out who the suitcase belonged to. Um, well, it's speculated who the suitcase Is it a suitcase or a briefcase? To. It's a suitcase. Okay. Um, so, I'm going to read this right here. So, it says that the suitcase belonged to John Andrew, who was um, John Bennett's, John Bennett Ramsey's half-son, his older half-son. Mm-hmm. Um, who at the time, I believe, was actually staying with them, but he wasn't there at the time that this happened, but he was, like, kind of coming in and out of their house a lot, um, who went to the University of CU Boulder, CU Boulder, so Colorado University Boulder, and lived in college housing. It's said that he didn't want to use the duvet and pillow sham on his bed, so he put them in the suitcase, because that is what they found in the suitcase, and left them at John and Patsy's house. Um, Outside? Yeah. John said the suitcase had been in the basement, but not in the art storage area, and that would mean that the intruder probably carried the base, uh, suitcase through the basement, and the handle should have been checked for his DNA. Right. And it, it just wasn't. And I don't believe that it was outside. I think that the suitcase was on the bottom, like underneath the broken okay, window. Okay, and that's what I was underneath asking. Underneath the broken the, window in the house. That's what I was asking last episode, which to me indicates somebody too small to get out that window by themselves brought that over there and used it to stand on. Yeah. Especially if it that was That is full. speculated that people people do think that it could have been used just to get like a better view of the outside by standing on the suitcase because it wasn't like a window. Here, I'm going to show you this picture. It wasn't like a window you could climb out of? No. This is the basement. I'll post these two. That's where the suitcase was and that's the window that was broken and that's where it was underneath You could very easily that. get out that Very window. easily get out the window, but I mean, you probably would need a little leverage because that does look like it's almost like right at the ceiling i mean not really because that suitcase is probably only about two and a half three feet tall yeah so that is a normal size window that you could easily get out of yeah the whole suitcase thing is just the whole yeah there's so many so many factors that make zero sense to me and only add more and more confusion as to why in the hell uh yeah but i mean there also is like no evidence that an intruder carried in something Mm -mm. i.e a suitcase a weapon there's no intruder DNA, really. Mm-hmm. So, like, 
I mean, there's not unidentifiable really DNA on the suitcase. All right, let's get into some more of these so I can shoot holes in them too. Yeah. <laughs> so the first widely discussed theory is that of Patsy Ramsey, JonBenet's mother. Unfortunately, Patsy took whatever secrets of that morning that she may have had with her to the grave when she passed away after a 13-year battle with ovarian cancer. Although her and John were formally exonerated in 2008 due to developments in DNA technology, many people still suspect that she accidentally murdered her six-year-old daughter in a fit of rage over a bedwetting accident and then covered it up herself. From the outside, Patsy was your typical suburban mother of two, known for her beauty pageant-winning daughter and her lavish Christmas parties, but still several pieces of evidence suggest that she may have had more to do with the events that took place than she let on. It's been speculated that while cleaning up one of JonBenet's bedwetting accidents, which were said to have occurred with frequency, Patsy flipped a switch and slammed JonBenet's head against the side of a hard, blunt surface, such as a bathtub or a dresser. Secondly, John Bonet was found with a rope around her neck that was tightened by a homemade garret determined to have been made out of a paintbrush taken from Patsy's paint kit that lay nearby. And thirdly, the biggest thing of them all, the ransom note that just so happens to be the weirdest note, weirdest ransom note in ransom note history, Patsy said that she found the two and a half page note on one of the rungs down the spiral staircase that led to the basement where the bottom body was ultimately found. It was written in a very weird tone using strange verbiage that literally seems, like I said earlier, that it was taken from a crime movie. Mm -hmm. And the note demanded $118,000 be given to the terrorist group by 10 a.m. the next day. As we all know now, that amount is the exact amount of John Ramsey's Christmas bonus from Access, Access Graphics that year. And some sources, including Boulder PD's former co-leading investigator Steve Thomas, have speculated that Patsy wrote the note herself in a moment of sheer panic after realizing what she had just done. That being said, through the handwriting analyses that the results pointing to her writing the note herself were found to be inconclusive, even though it was written on a piece of Patsy stationery from inside the home with her own pen. Okay, I have a huge problem with anyone speculating this was done in a fit of rage. In a fit of rage, yeah, you might she might have caused her to hit, hit her head on something, but you don't go and make a device to strangle your child in a fit mm -hmm. of rage That's i do believe a, that the initial attack was done in a fit of rage probably like knock somebody down hit their head that kind of thing i can completely see somebody losing their temper but to think that a mom is thinking a mm -hmm. fashion uh something so macabre to not only that but mimic like sexual assault because they have said that yeah um she couldn't be like it couldn't be conclusively said that she was raped, but they do believe that she was penetrated with something. Right. Um, they thought it was, like, assumed a lot of the autopsy and, like, the investigators have assumed that she was, she was penetrated with a paintbrush because there was blood in her underwear and, like, in the... This is graphic, I'm sorry. In the autopsy, her hymen was broken. Um, so they do think that whoever did it did harm her that way but that there wasn't actually any like bodily penetration right. which i mean you have to i don't believe the patsy theory at all because one she loved her daughter mm -hmm. a lot yeah um do i believe that maybe she something happened outside of her control that she didn't do and then she freaked out and helped in covered it covering up. it up yeah. with a ransom note yes i do believe that that is very possible but there is no no part of me that believes that she would have accidentally hit her daughter in a fit of rage or hit her daughter purposely in a fit of rage over a bedwetting incident and then staged the 
and then, brutal murder. Well, she that didn't was die staged. from the head wound. She died no. from the from the like strangulation. The, yeah, I'm gonna mention later. Like the head wound didn't even bleed. Yeah, like it just knocked her out. She died from strangulation. So it would make absolutely no sense. For her, one, if she accidentally hit her, to not just be like, I'm going to call 911 and get my daughter help. Why would she then be like, no, I hit her and she's like knocked out. And yeah. now I'm just going to brutally Go get a paintbrush and finish. Yeah. And hire no, a that, that I don't believe no that at all. Me. And usually people. I'm, and I just want to mention these are just theories. These are not my theories. These are theories that the internet has ran with for a very yeah. long time. And I'm not placing blame on Patsy or any of them. But And also typically if somebody is in a fit of rage and they do something and it they hurt someone that they care about it usually snaps them out of it mm-hmm. and then they're able to be like yeah oh unless you're like an actual like sociopath sociopath who yeah. feels nothing um so i do not i do not I agree don't with either. that whatsoever the next widely speculated theory is one that points to john ramsey himself linda arndt stated that she started to feel that perhaps the ramseys knew too much when John made the beeline straight to the basement cellar and found his daughter's body immediately. In 1999, Arndt told ABC News that she'd found other actions of theirs suspicious as well, like how John and Patsy let the 10 a.m. deadline in the $180,000 ransom note slip by without even a word. And she described kneeling beside John Bonet's body, quote, inches away from John Ramsey, so convinced that the murderer was in the house with her that she claimed to have quietly counted the bullets in her holster just in case she had to use one. Wow. That being said, she wasn't the only one who found his behavior that morning to be very suspicious. Another detective on the scene that heard John making arrangements to fly the family to Atlanta just mere moments after discovery of John Bonet's body remembers alarms, alarm bells going off in their head. John did later admit to this, claiming that they'd been asked to leave the house and that he just wanted to go home to Atlanta. Which makes sense. You, that is went, where they are from. You went through trauma. That is where their family is. Yeah. I, however, probably would not have uh, tried to go there five minutes after I found my daughter's dead no. body. But whatever, teach their own. Um, like I said, I want to reiterate that these are all just theories, and I am in no way pointing or pointing fingers or casting blame at one specific person. But are many rumors of sexual abuse circulated during the time of the investigation. John is quoted saying, "There is no history. A person doesn't go throughout their lives as a normal human being." One night, turn into a monster, slaughter their daughter, go to bed, and get up and act normal from there on. Which, I, I mean, that's I true. do agree. That just doesn't happen. John was also exonerated in 2008 when touch DNA testing cleared them, but possibly one of the biggest theories out there, still to this day, is the one surrounding John Bonet's older brother, Burke. I forget how much older. Was he nine Three, she was yeah. six? Three okay. years older. John and Patsy very diligently shielded Burke have a typo I said burge <laughs> from the press for years following the murder which made sense given his recent very strange interview with dr phil i don't know if you have seen it i feel like you told me about it but i'm not sure if i it actually is, watched it yeah it's an odd one burke who was formally exonerated in 2008 with his parents made the decision to quote clear the air in september of 2016 as he sat through dr phil's line of questioning in regards to the events leading up to that fateful night his behavior has been criticized, as it did indeed just feel off as he sat there and creepily grinned the entire time. Not too long after the episode aired, CBS aired the case of John Bonet Ramsey, which was a two-part documentary that reinvestigated the evidence of the crime with a select group of FBI and forensic experts. 
The documentary pointed as many fingers as it possibly could to Burke just short of making any formal accusations. One theory that the CBS team set up was particularly compelling. Forensic investigator Werner Spitz's review of Jomini's autopsy included a, quote, perfectly rectangular defect that he suspected came from a blow to the head with a blunt, heavy flashlight seen in the photo on the kitchen counter from the crime scene. He claimed the flashlight fit the eight and a half inch gash in her skull to perfection, even though no trace evidence of either JonBenet or Burke was allegedly found on the flashlight. So somebody wiped it clean. Maybe. I mean, who knows if it was even fucking collected. Yeah. The flashlight theory circles back to the pineapple being found in JonBenet's stomach. There is a theory that suggests that JonBenet had taken a slice of pineapple from Burke's late night stack snack that was found on the dining room table, leading him to strike her with the nearby flashlight out of anger. Lastly, the wounds on JonBenet's back were consistent with the edges of one of Burke's toy train tracks that Werner suggested may have been used to, by Burke to poke his sister's body to elicit a response. To try and, like, wake her up. Which seems like something that a, a kid would do. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, like, poke you. Like, wake up. Burke fired back immediately after the CBS special aired, claiming that CBS perpetrated a fraud on its viewers and filed a $150 million lawsuit against Spitz for potentially defamatory statements made about him to dive a little further into the pineapple situation on the table in the breakfast room investigators found a bowl with unfinished pineapple and milk as well as an empty glass with a tea bag during the autopsy the pineapple was also found in john benet's stomach and was quote consistent down to the rind with what had been found in the bowl the bowl itself bore the fingerprints of patsy and burke and latent fingerprints on the drinking glass on the dining room table belonged to burke Based on the condition of the pineapple in her intestine, the experts estimated that John Bonet had eaten it an hour and a half or two hours before she was killed. And considering the fact that examiners estimated that she lived for 45 to 120 minutes after being initially hit in the head, she would have had to eat the pineapple like right before the mm -hmm. first blow. That's so sad. That's a long time for her to have had that head injury mm -hmm. and been in pain. Based on the scenario that crime scene photos and autopsy results have put together, one of two things likely happened. Either Patsy served Burke a snack of pineapple and tea after they came home from the White family's Christmas party, or Burke made the snack himself and Patsy's fingerprints on the bowl can be explained by the fact that she handled the dishes earlier in the day as their housekeeper was not there. The one that is most widely believed is that Burke made the snack himself. The way it was prepared just screams child. There was a huge amount of pineapple in the bowl, too much for just one person to finish it as a snack, and a massive spoon was chosen to eat it with. Patsy even said herself in an interview, somebody else did this because I would never put a spoon that big in a bowl like that. I would think I would put two or three pieces on their plate with the rest of their food or something because, I mean, it looks weird to set out a bowl like that. Did you say there's milk in the pineapple? No, there's a, a glass, glass of milk. milk. Okay. Aside from this theory... We also have Burke's testimony where he indeed places himself in the vicinity of the attack. In his interview with Dr. Phil, he says, I had some toy that I wanted to put together. I remember being downstairs after everyone was kind of in bed and wanting to get this thing out. I mean, it's Christmas night. Right, he's probably excited. Kids want to do that. Given the location of Burke's room that we discussed in the first episode and the fact that it was the middle of the night, it would be easy for Burke to hear where everyone was. His admission to being downstairs and the link between him and JonBenet with the pineapple does indeed place him downstairs at some point that he technically wasn't supposed to be. Not to mention, when JonBenet was found in the basement, or where JonBenet was found right in the basement, was right around the area that was considered to be Burke's train room. 
and it was viewed as his domain of the home. He played there often, either alone or with his friends. As we briefly discussed in the first episode, whenever I consider what happened to JonBenet, I first and foremost see a chaotic and illogical crime that seemingly no sane adult would commit. It is believed that 40 to, this says 90, but 120, same thing. I'm an idiot now. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. No, 120 is two hours. This is an hour and a half. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Math is not our 40 forte. 42 120 minutes passed between the initial blow to JonBenet's head and the strangulation. So it is safe to assume that someone struck her over the head with a heavy object and then went quiet for a period of time. As she's unconscious, the autopsy and forensic pathologists state that several abrasions appeared on her body during this time. People have tried to match these marks to an alleged stun gun. There's some weird stun gun thing where they... I guess when you get stunned by a stun gun, it leaves like a certain shaped mark on your body. it like burns your skin. Yeah, so they have tested all kinds of stun guns and none is matched. Um, Like nothing has ever matched the bill as far as a stun gun goes. As I stated, the marks on her body have been compared to the marks on the train tracks lying in the train room and they have matched. Chief Investigator Kolar stated, the pins on the outside rails of that piece of O-type train track matched up exactly to the twin abrasions on the back of John Bonet. This was a toy readily accessible in the home and located only feet from where her body had been found. Crime scene photos and video had captured images of loose train track on the floor of Burke's bedroom as well. But Burke could not have gotten her unconscious body downstairs by himself at nine years old. Yes, he could have. You think? Um, like, the way she was positioned, where they found her, her arms were above her head. So somebody pulled her? They believed that she was dragged. She had to, she wasn't carried. Her arms were above her head and her feet were out in front of her. And the blanket was just kind of thrown over her head. The way that she was positioned, they believed that someone had to have, like, drug her and then just left her there and were, didn't reposition her at all. Were there marks on her back to indicate that she, like, went, hit her back being dragged down There the were abrasions on the like back, that? but I, they haven't really said if they were related to I mean, because that would explain mm -hmm. some of those marks being drug i don't know if they were carpeted or wooden stairs but if you're dragging somebody down wooden stairs that's gonna be like a moment yeah especially if you thing. have a tiny little body yeah i mean she was a little bitty kid but a nine-year-old's not very big either no but i mean bigger than her yeah i guess and um, it's a boy it, it I seems mean, weird don't want to sound like sexist here but boys get stronger way faster than girls do i mean he's a nine-year-old boy compared to a six-year-old girl yeah, I don't That's know. That's the difference I mean, between what, I mean, that'd be second grade and fifth grade? No, fifth grade's usually 10 or 11, so that's a fourth grader. First grade, fourth grade? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying that it seems like it would have been very hard for him to relocate her body. You would think, Which unless might, he had help. And then to think that he would have strangled her afterwards, mm -hmm. he would have to have some serious rage problems. Yeah. Like, I mean, we've also mentioned that, like, the strangulation using the paintbrush yeah, almost indicates that someone who wasn't strong enough to strangle her on their own with just their hands or the cord. Has anybody looked into if he had any anger issues beforehand? Was he a problem kid at school? I mean, he wasn't a problem kid, but they have talked about how he was just kind of off. Um, I don't want to diagnose anybody, and I don't know if he's been formally diagnosed, but there have been many... Um, discussions, especially after the Dr. Phil interview, that he is probably on the spectrum. I've heard that um, before. Which could be why he seems so awkward in interviews. And also so easy, easy to disassociate from mm -hmm. um, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Right. 
Okay. And, I mean, it probably was very strange for him to do that interview, um, just to give him a little credit. He was shielded from yeah. the media and the limelight his entire life. Which I, I don't mean, That blame. was the first his... public interview that he ever did, and that was in 2016, so that's 20 years. It just seems like after 20 years, it's unnecessary to do that. I agree. Like, it almost To seems... clear the air of, like, unless, I mean, I don't know, probably I mean, I guess his, his life. I was going to say his life has probably been very hard. Yeah. So, many people believe that Burke committed the initial attack and his parents went on to do the rest in an attempt to cover it up and or stage it to protect Burke. I personally don't believe this theory for multiple reasons. One being that I believe that John and Patsy would just call the ambulance after John Bonet was initially struck. Yeah. Um, her head wound didn't even bleed and she was still alive. Patsy was noted as never shying away from calling the doctor, so it would be incredibly odd for her to just change her patterns and choose to do terrible things to her daughter's body to hide this kind of attack. Kids fight, siblings hit each other in fits of rage. It isn't uncommon. But on the other hand, if they found JonBenet strangled and assaulted with a paintbrush, this could push them into covering the crime up because they wouldn't know how to simply explain it away. And having already just lost one kid, do you really want to lose the other one? Right. I mean, it, it's a rat irrational but still rational way of thinking as a mm -hmm. parent i think outside of the ramsey family there are other theories surrounding people who were not directly directly related to john bonnet gary olivia was a 32 year old known sex offender in boulder colorado when john bonnet was found strangled to death in what looked like a potential sexual assault at the time the convicted pedophile was living in the area on and off when uh, he's described as a transient like mm -hmm. he didn't really have a home um, when police allegedly found a magazine cutout of John Bonet in his backpack after he was apprehended on drug charges in 2000. He was released shortly after, but uh, suspicions still remained. The Ramsey family's private investigator, Ollie Gray, once referred to Gary's ties to John Bonet as a bombshell arrest in the case and drilled the Boulder PD for failing to consider him as a more credible suspect. Not too long after, Gary's high school friend, Michael Vale, stepped forward with an allegation supporting the suspicion. He claimed that not too long after the murder, Gary called him distraught and confessed that he had, quote, hurt a little girl. I hurt a little girl. Vale told In Touch magazine that he was particularly unsettled by how the knots used to fashion the garret that strangled JonBenet were similar to those used in an incident where Gary attempted to choke his mother with a telephone cord. My blood ran cold when I read that, Vale recalled. He, too, however, was cleared by DNA testing for the JonBenet murder. Although he was recently charged with two counts of sexual exploitation of a child for possessing child porn. <sighs> I know, it's a, this is a lot. Yeah. Another potential suspect was an electrician named Michael Helgoth, who worked in a nearby auto salvage yard. He was referred to as a hellraiser that was tied to an alleged property dispute involving the Ramses that, had been hint that has been hinted at as serving as possible motivation to seek revenge on the family. It has been speculated that once the 26-year-old Helgoth caught wind that he could be a suspect in the case, um, they found a boot print on the property, which was the main reason why they suspected him. He committed suicide before anyone could even speak to him. His death occurred two days after a 1997 press conference announcing that the Boulder DA was zeroing in on a new suspect. However, to this day, he remains cleared by both DNA and death. I mean, that kind of... Okay. I keep going back to the ransom note and the body being in the house because anybody who did it with a monetary motivation would have taken the body with them. Mm -hmm. Even if they had killed her, not intended to do so to take the time to write the ransom note completely negates that theory and that idea that it was for monetary gain. Right. 
because no one but them knew that the child was dead if yeah. that's initially what happened exactly so why on earth would anyone outside of the family I, I just don't understand how that they could still be suspects because it doesn't make sense it doesn't make any sense the only thing that makes sense is that if somebody accidentally killed her they would have taken the body left their ransom note got the money and used that money to flee mm-hmm. which and you probably wouldn't have found yeah I mean that is the only logical thing based on the weird ass scenario that has been laid out by everybody and I'm not saying that anybody in the house did it but it the outside intruder theory only makes sense if it was done for the purpose of ransom. Right. The only thing that I could think would be like a logical explanation to that is if he had some sort of animosity to the family over this property dispute and just wanted to put them through hell. But even then, you would think he would just kidnap her. Right. Like, you're not going to then take the time to write this fucking ransom note. And, and there's a big difference between being mad at somebody over property and murdering a baby. Mm-hmm. And I would be more inclined to believe the intruder theory if there has been any indication that an intruder entered the house outside of the broken window. Right. That is the only thing. And there is not, like, any DNA that has linked any any of these people. They've all been cleared by DNA. Well, and if there's a boot print outside, there should have been boot tracks inside. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't want to point fingers either, but it's going to be really easy to clear the Ramsey family of DNA. It's their fucking house. Yeah. Their DNA is everywhere. everywhere. Their DNA is on JonBenet. Their DNA is everywhere in the house. It's going to be really easy yeah. to clear them of DNA because it's going to be there. Everywhere. Everywhere. It's going to be on her. Like, it's going to... It's a lived-in house. It's their daughter. They... He carried... John Ramsey admitted to carrying her into bed that night. His, and carried her body upstairs. Right. And... His DNA... Their DNA is everywhere. Yeah. And the... Patsy's pants. DNA is going to be on the clothes because she probably got her dressed. Burke's DNA is going to be on her somewhere because it was Christmas time and they were probably playing. Mm-hmm. She went right to bed. She didn't take a shower. John's DNA is going to be all over. It's their house. So unless there was that, that one piece of DNA that they can't attribute to anybody, the blood on her long johns... It's the only thing that they focused on. So, okay. I don't know if this is a theory in there anywhere, but is it possible that somebody at the Christmas party assaulted her and then came, realized that she might say something and came in later and killed her to hide it? I mean, what, like the... That Christmas party they had gone to at their friend's house? Yeah, well, I think the only people that were at that Christmas party were them and the Whites. I mean, that is a possibility, and maybe that's why. I don't know. I mean, I mean that would explain why Fleet White was that also walking would explain, through the house. That would also explain why the murder happened the way that it did. Like, somebody, because the indication that there was some kind of penetration, not necessarily of a sexual nature, like with the body parts or whatever, maybe somebody did something to her, realized that they were going to get caught, mm-hmm. freaked the fuck out, and then came over and did all those things maybe i mean i don't know if that's ever been put out there if it hasn't i would think that would be a viable yeah, I don't thing think, to like, go off of the whites were ever even really looked at which i mean anybody they'd within, be looked at given the fact that they were just with her 12 yeah, hours before anybody in the area i would think that they had ties who should have been scrutinized that's probably why their suspect list was so large i mean mm-hmm. we said before what was it like 13 people 15 people had keys to the ramsey ramsey house yeah which, I mean, when you have that many people who have keys to the house and there's no sign of breaking and entering outside of the broken window, that could have happened at any point. Which further supports my theory that yeah. somebody could have gone in there to cover their tracks. Mm-hmm. 
And it would have to be someone who's close to John Ramsey to know that he has that amount of money. And somebody close to the family that's been in the house and knows where her bedroom is and where is a place And knows to that there's them. a little tiny wine cellar in the basement. That a never place to hide in. the body that would be able to pass mm -hmm. for a while. Yeah. I'm going to start doing investigative journalism <laughs> on this. I don't know. That just me is the most plausible explanation. Yeah. In 2006, a former school teacher, John Mark Carr, confessed out of the blue to the 1996 strangulation of John Bonet in graphic sexual detail. He was arrested in Thailand, where he had been living on the lam after facing child porn charges in the U.S. He reached out to a University of Colorado Boulder professor named Michael Tracy over email in regards to a documentary Tracy was making on the case. The emails took a very disturbing turn, and Tracy reported Carr to the police, who arrested him in Bangkok as a possible suspect. He was then immediately flown to Boulder for questioning, but was ultimately cleared after his DNA failed to match the profile of the unknown male. Linda Hoffman Pugh had worked for the family as their housekeeper, and her husband Mervyn was their handyman, so it shocked none that she was known to carry a key to the house. During the investigation, she didn't fit the profile the police were after at all, which was white male, former convict, 25 to 30 years old, but she wasn't quiet when it came to voicing her suspicion that Patsy had accidentally killed John Bonet. I'm guessing she did not stay employed very long. <laughs> no. With that said, Patsy claimed to investigators that Linda was struggling for money and had asked for a loan of several thousand dollars, which the Ramseys had declined. Police showed up to the Pew home the night after the murder and asked her to write the number 180,000 on a piece of paper and reportedly took her fingerprints and several strands of her hair. She then testified in front of a grand jury for a total of eight hours that included a statement against Patsy that read, I think she had multiple personalities. She'd be in a good mood, and then she'd be cranky. She got into arguments with John Bonet about wearing a dress or about a friend coming over. I'd never seen Patsy so upset. Isn't, isn't there another theory um, that, and again, just a theory that I think I've heard, that is speculation that um, Patsy thought that John was becoming a little too friendly with John Bonet and got jealous? I don't know. I haven't read that as much. I'm sure that's just some weird internet people getting it, weird. I swear I heard that somewhere that they thought that she, because she had previously been a pageant winner and was getting older and was starting to resent her daughter for being so highly regarded and it was like a jealous rage kind of thing. It's possible, I guess. I still don't I mean, know it's if just I something that, that I, yeah. just something that I think I read. The Hoffman Pew theory claims that the housekeeper led a trusting John Bonet down into the basement that night in an attempt to trick her employers into leaving money for her ransom. And it is possible that she could have seen John Ramsey's pay stub for $180,000 as a holiday bonus. She was familiar with both the family schedule and the layout of their home, so she makes a convenient suspect who did not have an alibi as she claims she was asleep in bed while her husband slept on the couch. It's easy to speculate that she could have been involved, even though all evidence implicating her in the case is circumstantial at best, and she has never been formally accused of this crime. I think that is a very odd theory to think Yeah, that. I agree. And I think that that's the upper class punching down to Agreed. the working class mm -hmm. trying to Easy use thing them to as... Do. She's desperate for money. Using like, them as a scapegoat, yeah. which is bullshit. So all in all, there are many theories and many possibilities as to what could have happened on that fateful night. But there are more recent developments. John Ramsey is asking the Colorado governor to intervene and let an outside agency take over DNA testing and the ongoing investigation. The petition claims that Boulder PD have not worked fast enough to test the DNA evidence, which I fucking agree. I mean, yeah. it's been how long now? 
And given the lack of progress, the petitioners are asking the governor to move DNA decisions in this case away from the BPD into an independent agency so that John Bonet has a last chance at the justice she deserves. John Ramsey said he, quote, approved the text of the petition, signed it, and contributed to find its circulation. He wants DNA testing to be done by a third party. They are a, in a small community and they don't have a lot of police resources and no experience in homicides, Ramsey said. I don't fault them for that, but they are refusing to help from those they're refusing help from those that really knew what they were doing. Arrogance and ego has gotten the way, and there's a lot of qualified help willing to come in. Police have never explained to him or his family why they would not accept outside help on the case, he said. During an appearance at a crime con this year, I believe, which is a convention for true crime fanatics, if you don't know, John was asked what he has done to help his help find his daughter's killer, and he said that he has offered to pay for the testing of DNA evidence but has been turned down. The Boulder PD responded in a statement that it was aware of the recent aware of the recent request and wants the community to know that it has never wavered in its pursuit to bring justice to everyone affected by the murder. Ever since December 26, 1996, detectives have followed up on every lead that has come into the department to include more than 21,016 tips, letters, and emails, and traveling to 19 states to interview or speak with more than 1,000 individuals in connection to this crime, which is what their statement said. So that last piece kind of shoots the Ramsey family being involved theory out of the water, because why would John, if he had any indication that Burke had accidentally killed her, push for that. Burke's not pushing for it. Well, maybe. The only two people that are pushing for it are John Ramsey and um, his half-brother, or his half-son. And maybe they don't. I don't know. It's it's bizarre. The whole case is bizarre. And I mean, it's so sad. At this point, Patsy is deceased, mm -hmm. so. Well, that was a doozy and a half. Yeah. It gave me, literally gave me a headache while I was doing this research. I hope I did it some justice. It's a lot. It is a lot. I think you did a great job. Thank you. Now I, you know why I could not fit that into one episode. <laughs> Way too much. Yeah. Um, so sidebar, if you are a true crime buff like we are, which I'm assuming you are if you're listening to this, we just finished watching the Inventing Anna documentary, docuseries, docudrama on Netflix, and it's really good. So you should give it a, mm -hmm. give it a look. It's not true crime like we normally cover because it just involves money and fraud fraud but it is an interesting exciting watch for sure mm -hmm. if you want something like that too we watched the bad vegan documentary that was also yeah. kind of along the same lines yeah but it was awesome so not to train i, I was just trying to switch it up a little bit <laughs> is there any theory that you believe more than others I'm not, i don't know i'm kind of hesitant to even say because I don't want someone to come after me for sue us. Mm -hmm. I think the outside intruder theory is one I least likely believe. Mm, me too. It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And that's all I will say. Yeah. It makes no sense at all. It really, it doesn't fit. It's like the most illogical thing ever. I would be way more inclined to believe it if that ransom note did not exist. Mm -hmm. It's almost like whoever wrote that ransom note really shot themselves in the foot by doing so because it would be way easier to believe that someone broke in killed her in the basement if that was not there mm -hmm. because you gain nothing no other than just detracting from yeah maybe them not looking for you longer because they assume that you're unless you're thinking that because you killed her that that would keep them give you by extra time possibly it's like, also just like this house maybe keep them from looking at the house their house was huge and the fact that like security cameras 
and surveillance was not working at the time. Always. Never, for whatever reason. Christmas time. <laughs> like, <laughs> that just adds. I honestly, I hope that the cold case people come in and can do their magic, but I yeah. don't know if I have much hope at this point. The only thing that I, I hope that her killer is eventually found, but I also hope that at no point in time did she ever regain consciousness and that all those other things that happened to her she was not aware of. Yeah, me too. Because that is a horrible way for anybody to die, let alone a baby. Mm -hmm. And it's really upsetting. All right, so <laughs> I think that's it for us on this one. Yep. Thanks, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for I don't listening. I want to do our outro. <laughs> uh, next week it's a paranormal episode. I will be posting the recipe for the um, blackberry sparkling vodka lemonade that we're going to be enjoying while we record that very soon. So you can make your own, trying to get some more of those summer bevies in before it becomes fall and I become a cider obsessed maniac again and start doing all caramel pumpkin my drinks. I know. So thanks for listening to the Monsters and Mixers podcast. Please follow us on our socials on Facebook at Monsters and Mixers pod, on Twitter at Monsters Mixers, and on Instagram at Monsters and Mixers podcast. Like and follow us on your preferred listening platform. Leave a five-star rating and send us those stories via email at Monsters and Mixers 2 or at one of the socials mentioned. At Gmail. Oh, yeah, at Gmail. I'm sorry. <laughs> See you next time when we dive into another terrifying tale and concoct a new delicious drink to wash down the horror. Now get out there and meet some ghosts. And make some toasts. <laughs>